All right. Well, uh, I know that we have several people probably uh, still coming to join us. At least I hope we do. But today we have a full class. This is going to be uh, maybe even a little different than some I've done before. Uh, But it's in Ruth, so you can uh, rest assured that that's where we are. Uh, We are in Ruth, and matter of fact, I think last time I told you that we are going to take just a, maybe a one-class branch, uh, after a little bit of review, into courtship. And so I'm looking forward to teaching it, and uh, everybody here, of course, has you know, been through courtship, and it's on the past, and it's... Uh, that's right. <laughs> so, Charles, welcome. Charles, we're expecting you, and so I've uh, been praying for you. <clears throat> anyhow, so anyhow, we're, we are going to be in uh, the uh, chapter 2 of Ruth. I'm, what I plan to do is to do, cover some of the same material I covered last time because I really hurried it at the end of the class, as I sometimes do, and then we'll get off on to our we'll get to our subject that uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, to teaching. So, let's take just a few seconds for spiritual preparation. Spiritual preparation, I think, is something we've done in this class now quite a few times, so everybody is familiar with it. It's just an opportunity for you to take a few seconds between you and God the Father to prepare your soul to study the Word of God. So let's bow our heads in prayer, and in a few seconds I'll open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for the lesson that you have prepared this morning. We pray, Father, as we study this uh, this information, this passage of Scripture, and as we look at the principles that are resident here, that they will not only be resonant there, but they will resonate in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are in Ruth chapter 2. And uh, last time I... I gave us a, we had a review. We reviewed from really uh, chapter one, verse one, all the way down to chapter two, verse twelve, and then I tried to teach thirteen and fourteen last time, but uh, again it was a little bit rushed at the end. And today, uh, what I, as I said early, uh, just a few minutes ago, what I really wanted to do. <clears throat> is to get to a couple principles that I think we can learn from this passage. And uh, it may not necessarily (coughs) be principles that we would associate with Boaz and Ruth, but I think we probably should. And so let me get started uh, in verse... uh, Let me just back up to... Verse 11, because this is where Boaz is responding to Ruth. She, she uh, shows him great respect. 
<clears throat> and she says, why have I found favor in your eyes? And the word favor there, sometimes we'll understand the word favor meaning to you've uh, given me a favor or you've done me a favor. But that's not how this word is used. The word here really is grace. Um, why have I found grace in your eyes, in your sight? And so that's where we find ourselves. And that you should take notice of me, a foreigner. And she recognizes that this is a stretch in this society. She's not only somebody that she believes is unfamiliar to him, but she is from a completely different, what we could call a different race, and she's from a different country. This is something that would be highly unusual. And as I'll mention later, there is nowhere in the text that there's an indication that he knows her name or that she knows who he is. So we'll cover that a little bit more. Verse 11, And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me. And then we see that there are two things that have been reported to him, and I'll condense those for you. The first one says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. And this means kindness. She has shown kindness to her mother-in-law. So he knows her character from that part of what he's of the report he's received. And then secondly, how you have left your father and your mother, and the word there we've studied before, left, really is to abandon it. It's stronger than just to leave. It means that you have almost cut off ties. And in that day and age, uh, moving from country to country, that was almost true. So the word abandon here <clears throat> is probably is a better translation. How you have abandoned your mother and your your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. So she's number one, kindness, and number two is courage. So this woman, this woman is demonstrating kindness and courage. And in the second part, we may not understand this completely today, but she has left her her people. She's left her land, and while it's not mentioned here, well, remember, she's left her gods as well. She has made a complete change. This woman has done something that's very dramatic. We remember, and as we look at this, we can almost see the position that Naomi was in when she was talking to the girls. She was saying, I'm going from here, Moab, to Israel. And it's going to be a dramatic change. And even though culture says you are now part of my family and you are to be devoted to me, you don't understand the significance of this change. And it might be better for you to stay in your land with your people and with your gods. But what we see in Ruth is that she, her commitment is not going to be shaken. She's not going to say, well, you're right, it might be easier. It might be a little bit better for me to stay here. She's saying, no, I've made a commitment. Now, we don't know whether she made that commitment at the time that she married into the family, but she's come to that commitment over these 10 years. She says, no, I made a commitment. I'm going to keep that commitment. Not only that, but I'm going to treat you like my mother-in-law. I'm going to treat you like my mother. Kindness and courage is what we see in Ruth. And that's what, what Boaz knows of her. 
12. The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. The What's interesting in this, this verse, in verse 12, is it says, The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel. He, Boaz, claims a promise of God here. God has promised us, if we are obedient, if we are faithful, He will bless us. And Boaz, by using terms here, the first one says repay. It's a word for wages. This is the same word that Laban used to pay Jacob. It's wages for work. It's the only two places we have this in the Bible. And so what we understand from this is that Boaz is saying, the Lord has promised you, and it's an obligation. God has obligated himself to you. And I think it's a very strong word here. And a full reward be given you by the Lord. So he's saying that even though he obviously isn't commanding the Lord to do this, there's the inference here that there is responsibility on the Lord's part. And it's not just the Lord, but it's the Lord God of Israel where you now reside. You are now in Israel, and this is the Lord God of Israel. There is only one God. There are no other gods under whose wing you have come for refuge. And we, and we talked about this wing. He uses the metaphor, uh, zoomorphism we call it, because it's an animal form. And he says, under the wing. And it... it uh, brings to us the picture of either maybe an eagle that's protecting uh, her young or a, a mother hen who's protecting her young, but they're going to, he's going to supply their needs. Verse 13. So, verse 13, let's see. <clears throat> then she said, let me find favor. And again, the favor here is not I'm asking you for a favor, because we could very easily miss this. And wander off the reservation if we thought this was some sort of a favor that was being given to her. She's not asking that. She says, let me find grace in your sight. And we talked about this idiom. This is a difficult idiom. As a matter of fact, I was going to bring the... I was reading in a a commentary this morning just to see how somebody else handled this. And the author, who I greatly respect, uh, had a paragraph on this verse And he said the idioms and the text here are so difficult in the Hebrew to bring it over into English that he says we just have to do the best we can. And his last last, uh, statement was, um, this still isn't adequate, but anything beyond this is just a guess. And so uh, there are at times some difficulties in bringing uh, uh, concepts over into another language, as we know. Then she said, let me find grace in your sight, my Lord. And this has a sense of gratitude as well as a continuation. So the idea, I think I said last time, may I continue to find favor in your sight, but it also has the sense of thank you for treating me with grace or graciously. Then he says, for you have comforted me. And what I didn't have the time last time to tell you is that this word for comfort here, you have comforted me, comes really from an Arabic word. And the Arabic word means to sigh. It means to take a deep breath. And so what it means is there's relief here. You've comforted me. It's like, you know, she can relax. It's the idea of taking a breath. You have comforted me. And you have spoken kindly to your maidservant. And I mentioned last time that it's actually the word, you have spoken to my heart. 
So you have spoken to my heart. And that gives us the sense that uh, Boaz understands the situation that she is in. He understands the concerns of her heart. He understands that high on her list here is continued concern for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Also, uh, they are new back in the country. And of course, uh, Ruth knows some of the customs, but she is an alien. She's a stranger. And so there is bound to be anxiety here. And Boaz is answering the uh, foundation, the roots of that anxiety. And then she says, for though I am not like one of your maidservants. And I think I pulled that back and described that as what she's really saying is that I am that I do not have the same standing of your maidservant. So you are now treating me in a manner that you're treating the other uh, workers that are here, the other uh, the gals that are here, the other maids that are working for you. But I don't have that standing. So... She's, she demonstrates that she is humble. She understands her situation. But she also understands the extent to which Boaz has gone to provide for her, to give her this grace, this favor. So, Ruth here views herself on the lowest rung of the social ladder. But she is being lifted up in her eyes. Now, verse let me go on to verse 14. And I think I said last time that there's, there is a time, we have a temporal change here between verse 13 and 14. Uh, Boaz has been talking to her in the area of what we might call the, you know, the building from which the, uh, uh, the administrative work or the operations are coming. So that's where the organization is. And she's come up there for some shelter to get out of the sun. And Boaz has told her that she may drink from the water that his young men have drawn. And I'd like to pause here also for a second. Boaz has done two things that we might consider unusual for the time. Um, back in verse 9, He says, have I not commanded the young man not to touch you? And the word touch there does not necessarily only connote touching, but it also connotes uh, interacting with her in an inappropriate way. And then he says, you may drink from the water that has been drawn by the men here, which means that it's probably uh, as they left Bethlehem or there was some cistern somewhere where they could get the water and they carried it out to where they Uh, where they're now working. Well, the first thing that we notice uh, that brings it a little bit into our modern time is that Boaz has instituted an anti-sexual harassment policy. That's what he's done here. So he is ahead of his time. And there are some instances where that policy can be taken to extremes. But here, he simply establishes this. They are not to bother. They're not to hassle Ruth. But secondly, and the way I'd like to to describe this, is culturally drawing water was considered more of a household task. And so a household task was done more by the women. But Boaz has this 
heavy task of drawing water and bringing it to the field, not done by the women because that would normally be the way it was done. Socially, that was their job to draw the water. And you might say, well, that sounds unusual. Well, that's just society was at the time. Drawing the water was something that somehow had been segregated into a woman's job. And we, you know, today we still have some of those, the sense of that, even though I think it's it's really uh, a man who's uh, truly understands his role in the family doesn't consider jobs below him, whether it's vacuuming or washing the clothes or cooking. As a matter of fact, I do that in my house all the time. My wife does, doesn't do very much in my house. I'm kidding, of course. But anyhow, so there, but this is the distinction here. And for, for again, uh, for those of the time reading this, that, that would stand out to them. That would make, uh, they would see that as, as unusual. Verse 14. Now Boaz, Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here, and I said the word is drawn near, which gives us the impression that Ruth had not drawn near. She had been given, uh, been given these opportunities, these privileges, but when it came time to eat, she doesn't just wander in and say, oh, I'm part of the family now, or something of that nature. She still stands off. She understands her role. But Boaz says, no, Ruth, come near. Approach us. And that's the word we have here. Approach, and I think what I started to say was that there's a distinction between this, the timing and this meal time. She's worked hard, he's talked to her, and now it's meal time, and we get the, the, the sense that it's more of a noon meal, although it's probably a little bit later than that. And what might she have brought with her to eat? See, that's the next um, inference that we have here, is that she's come to glean, to pick grain. So she may or may not have even brought a lunch with her. She's probably anticipating maybe uh, eating some of the grain that she has picked, and that would be not unusual at that time. Uh, sometimes they would uh, cook the grain and eat it uh, that way. But she probably doesn't have anything to eat. So Boaz, understanding that, invites her in. And they're not just having grain, but bread has been prepared. So she's being offered bread as well. And then he says, I'm not just giving you the bread, but come over here and eat with us and eat the way that we are eating. This isn't a half invitation of, go ahead, you can have some of our food. No, it's come over here where the food is and the condiments and everything else and join us. And... Again, the picture here might be highly unusual for um, the laborers, the reapers, the harvesters that work for Boaz because they uh, have worked for him, they know him, they're familiar with him. And as I also mentioned, Boaz demonstrates his character by he's eating with you know, we might call the hired help. These are people that work for him. He's not eating off on his own. He's with them. But he invites her over. So they might have even, even though they understand his character, they might have thought, this is unusual. Normally the gleaners don't receive this kind of, uh, of treatment. But he does that. So she sat beside the reapers, the harvesters here. She becomes one of his team, so to speak. And again, it's not every... You know, every person for themselves, or every man for themselves. He 
goes the extra mile. He's very hospitable, and he serves her. So he serves her, he passes her uh, part screen, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. So we saw, and I, of course, told a little bit of a joke here about the bachelor's dream. There's always leftovers, and so she has leftovers to take home. Now, question at the end of class, and I think before we go on, it's, I want to reemphasize this. And I've talked about this before, but it's important for us to see it one more time. The relationship and the division of labor here. Uh, the way it's described, and we don't have a lot of this description in the Bible, but the way it's described here in Ruth is that we have harvesters. But there appears to be at least two different groups in this harvesting effort. So if we were in the field, and um, let's just make this the field, and let's say our entry is down here, and we're working from one end, from south, from south to north, we would have, in one area, we would have a team of what I'm, uh, of what I'm going to say are harvesters who are cutting the grain. So we have one group that's going ahead, cutting the grain. Then we have behind them is another group that is probably gathering the grain and bundling it. Now, that's not to say that we couldn't cut it and bundle it at the same time, but if we have a process here, it goes much quicker. If somebody's cutting it and laying it down, cutting it and laying it down, and moving on. And they could be using a hand sickle, or they could be using a larger scythe, as we sometimes call I remember my dad used to use one of those, and he would go ahead and cut the, uh, the weeds or the grass or whatever it is, and then Rick and I and, uh, would come along behind sometimes and bundle it up and take it to the cows. But we'd have these two groups. And then behind them is a third group that is not part of the team up here, but they are the gleaners. So these are the gleaners. And the gleaners are moving really independently. They're moving independently of the two teams here. And you say, well, how do we know that we have these teams? And the question last time was very well asked. And I went back, found it finally at the end of last class. But in verse 9, actually 8 and 9, we have the indication of this team. If we, and so in verse 8 it says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close, remain close by my young women. And so we have a feminine plural here, his servant servant girls, his young women. Verse 9, let your eyes be on the field where, and then we have the, the phrase, they reap. But we... It's actually masculine plural, and I think a better translation could be, and let your eyes be on the field where the men are harvesting. And then we have, and go after them, and there's a clear distinction between the previous word. This, the last word is feminine plural. So he says, keep your eye on this team, and where they reap, where they harvest, you will work with them. But follow after the women who are, and that's the distinction we have in that verse. And then, of course, as I said, there's gleaners who are operating independently back here, individuals that are gleaning for themselves. 
So that's the situation that we have. And Boaz has lifted her from gleaners up here to be working behind the, uh, the women who are, in my mind, gathering that which has been cut so that they can later on thresh it and also uh, winnow it. Now, I said last time that there are at least five actions of Boaz here. And the five actions were, first of all, he invites Ruth, a Moabitess, to join them. And that would be unusual. So I think most of you probably have this in your notes already. But he invites Ruth, a Moabitess, to join them. Secondly, he encourages her to share the food that's been prepared for his workers. So she is now being treated as one of his workers. We said thirdly that he invites her to join them in the very act of eating the same things that they are eating, meaning the garnishes. And I think there's a a definite distinction there, sort of the condiments that would go with the bread. Four, he serves her himself. And then five, Boaz makes sure she has enough food to satisfy her and enough to be taken home for her and Naomi later on. So we see that Boaz is very generous. Now, what I want to do is give you a quick review of what I think we have here. And you either can just listen to this, or I'll try to go slow enough that you'd like to write it down. But I have um, quite a few points here that just puts, I believe, all of this in context for us so that we can then really start the principles that I would like to start. And so I'm probably going to need to move a little bit quickly here, but here we go. First of all, first of all, our first bit of background information is that Ruth goes to the field seeking work. She's not seeking special treatment. So Ruth goes to the field seeking work. She's not seeking special treatment. Remember last time I said she doesn't go there looking for a sugar daddy. So she doesn't go there uh, seeking special treatment or a way out of her situation. Remember we said she's a Moabitess, she's in a a foreign country. Uh, She's simply there to work. Secondly, Boaz learns of her situation and he realizes that she's a member of his extended family. So secondly, the first one was Ruth goes to the field seeking work. She's not seeking special treatment or a way out of her situation. Secondly, Boaz learns of her situation and realizes she's a member of his extended family. Boaz learns of her situation and realizes she's a member of his extended family. Three. Some at this point might ask, if he recognizes her as a member of the extended family, why doesn't he do even more for her? Why does Boaz, once he's learned of her situation, why does he not even do more for her because she's a member of the family? So that question might come up. Is it possible that Boaz should have done more for her? Well, four, I think the reason that we might ask that question is because we are either ignorant of the situation or we don't understand the life in that period of time. The reason we might ask that question is because we are either, I think I used the word ignoring here in my notes. The reason we might ask that question is because we are either ignoring or we don't understand life in in that period of time. We're either ignoring it or we don't understand life in that period of time.
in this society, and this will be number five, even though I don't have my numbering right. So five, in this society where everyone is a worker, Boaz does everything he would do for a member of his family. So in this society where everyone is a worker, Boaz does everything you might say he would normally do for a member of his family. He does everything he would normally do for a member of his family. And I say that, and this is his first encounter with her. So that doesn't detract from who he is. So as I said, we might think that he should have done more, but in our uh, sixth point, for him to have done more would have been abnormal. For him to have done more would have been completely abnormal for life in Israel at that time. For him to have done more would have been completely abnormal for life in Israel at that time. So that was six. Seven. It's harvest time. It's harvest time. Seven. And everyone in the family has a job. It's harvest time and everyone in the family has a job. So in in an agricultural society, everybody helps with the harvest. This is their life. This grain is their life. So everyone helps with the harvest. I think we're on eight. Eight, Boaz moves her from being moves her from being one of the gleaners. Boaz moves her from being one of the gleaners, simply working on her own, to gleaning right behind the reapers. So Boaz moves her from one from being one of the gleaners, working on her own, to gleaning right behind the reapers. And in so doing, of course, she doesn't have to jostle or uh, compete with other gleaners. She's no longer in in competition with these other gleaners. So Boaz moves her from being one of the gleaners to gleaning right behind the reapers, not needing to fight or jostle with the other gleaners. Nine, Boaz tells her to drink from the water source that his reapers have drawn. So I'm just sort of making sure that we understand this in the situation as well. Boaz tells her to drink from the water source that his reapers have drawn, and he brings her to the table where he and his workers are eating. So for those who say he should have done more, he's doing everything that he would probably do for an extended member of his family. Boaz tells her to drink from the water source that his reapers have drawn, and he brings her to the table where he and his workers are eating. The tenth point would be that Boaz ensures that she has food left over to take home for herself and Naomi. Boaz ensures that she has food left over to take home for herself and Naomi. Boaz ensures she has leftovers or food left over to take home for herself and Naomi. Point 11. 
Boaz is being kind, generous, and gracious to her. Boaz is being kind, generous, and gracious to her. Gracious to her. He's not making advances towards her. He's being kind, generous, and gracious to her. He's not making advances towards her. So, in our context here, there's absolutely no hint of Boaz having any other intentions. Boaz is being kind, generous, and gracious to her. He's not making advances towards her. There's no hint in our context that he is motivated in any other way. There's no, there's no indication here of any romantic, um, romantic indications. Twelve, given the racial and social barriers separating them. Twelve, given the racial and social barriers separating them. Any thoughts, or the thoughts, romantic thoughts, or any other motives, would not have even crossed Ruth's mind. This is certainly not on Ruth's mind. So given those racial and social barriers that separate them, any romantic thoughts would certainly not have crossed Ruth's mind. So 13, just to kind of maybe bring it into a situation we'd understand, Ruth is being treated in a manner that we might expect Boaz to treat a sister. Boaz is being, but Ruth is being treated in a manner that we might expect Boaz to treat a sister. Ruth is being treated in a manner that we might expect Boaz to treat a sister. 14. Ruth does not understand the situation. Ruth certainly does not understand this situation, and that would be point 14. She is simply overwhelmed by his kindness. Ruth does not understand the situation. She's overwhelmed by his kindness. And the reason she is is because she doesn't understand the situation. And before we go on point 15 here, so why has Ruth found favor, found grace in Boaz's eyes? So why has Ruth found favor in his eyes? And I think... Three quick reasons. The first one is that Boaz is a man of character. The first one is that Boaz is a man of character. So why has Ruth found favor in his eyes? First of all, Boaz is a man of character. Secondly, he does recognize her as a member of the family. Secondly, he does recognize her as a member of the family. And third, and the one that we must always remember, is the providence of God in this situation. Thirdly, the providence of God, the hand of God in this situation. We may remember back in Ruth 2, in Ruth 2, 2 she said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him or after the one in whose sight I might find grace. Well, Ruth wished for a person in whom she might find favor, she might find grace. This was an unspoken prayer. And God has answered that prayer by preparing Boaz's heart for her. So the providence of God here prepares Boaz for her.
Boaz is prepared for this situation. He's a man of character. She's a member of the family. But the providence of God brings her to Boaz, and Boaz is prepared for her. All right. Um, last time I said that, that I've taught this class, and there have been those who periodically question my stress on the character of Boaz, that he might have had other intentions. And so what I'd like to do is begin our first set of principles here. But let me say what I said last time. If we were to say at this point that Boaz's, Boaz does have other intentions towards Ruth, you know, what other intentions might those be? Well, they might be romantic intentions. They may be you know, amorous ones. They might even be something less than honorable that he expects something from her in a physical way. Well, we don't see that here, and we don't see that Ruth senses that, nor do we see in the text that Ruth, that uh, Boaz has made those kind of overtures. <clears throat> but let's say, but so my point here that I want to make is that Boaz, and we've, we'll see this in the rest of the story, but I'm going to set up some principles now with Boaz and Ruth that will, should help us view the rest of the story in context. So, our first set of principles about Boaz and why he acts the way he does, what his intentions are. And I think I ended last time by saying that uh, whatever his intentions might be, he is going to wait for the proper time. And what do I mean by the proper time? Okay, now that kind of sets up our first set of principles. First of all, number one, Boaz is going to wait until he knows more about this girl. And this is going to set up our second set of principles. Boaz is going to wait until he knows more about this girl. Boaz is going to wait until he knows more about this girl. And in doing so... He gives her time to know more about him. Boaz is going to wait until he knows more about her, and in doing so, he gives her time to know more about him. Secondly, he does not begin a relationship. He does not begin a relationship before he has some idea whether a relationship is in order. He doesn't begin a relationship until he determines... He doesn't begin a relationship before he has some idea whether a relationship is in order. That was the second point. He doesn't begin a relationship before he has some idea whether a relationship is in order. Thirdly, and I've already discussed that there is a, a, di- a distinction here between racial and the social situation. So three, Boaz also needs time to think through the facts of such a relationship. Boaz also needs time to think through the facts of such a relationship. And to come to a reasoned... Boaz needs time to think through the facts of such a relationship 
and come to a reasoned, responsible conclusion whether a relationship is even possible. He needs to come to a reasoned, responsible conclusion whether a relationship is even possible. And those are thoughts that we need to have before we begin a relationship. So those are the three things that we start with. So fourth, what do we notice about him? Four, he does not act impulsively or rashly. Boaz does not act impulsively or rashly. We can say that he doesn't force himself on her, nor does he play games with her. He doesn't force himself on her, nor does he play games with her. He doesn't act impulsively or rashly. He doesn't force himself on her, nor play games with her. That was four. Five. Boaz thinks beyond himself. Boaz thinks beyond himself, acting graciously, responsibly, and with consideration, and all within the realm of what's appropriate. Boaz thinks beyond himself, acting graciously, responsibly, and with consideration, all within the realm of what's appropriate. See, to understand the situation very clear, we need to understand the social situation, the racial situation. We need to understand uh, who Boaz is, who she is, what the relationships are, and sometimes we, we, we don't take that into consideration. Six. When the time is right, six. When the time is right, and this is the important part, upon what I build everything else from here on out. When the time is right, Boaz will make a commitment before he begins the relationship. When the time is right, Boaz will make a commitment before he begins the relationship. So that's point six. When the time is right, Boaz will make a commitment before he begins the relationship. Seven is kind of a point of clarification here. But point seven, even though in this case, Ruth is the one that advances the subject. We'll see this later in chapter three. Even though in this case, Ruth is the one that advances the subject. Even though in this case, Ruth is the one that advances the subject. It's under the wise counsel of Naomi. Even though it's Ruth that advances the subject, it's under the wise counsel of Naomi. And Boaz, it's under the wise counsel of Naomi, and Boaz has already thought through the course and action that was necessary. And Boaz has already thought through the course and the action that was necessary. But Boaz hasn't done anything. He's thought it through. He understands the course and the action that was necessary, but he's not done anything. He's not made any advances. That was seven. Point eight. He makes no move 
point eight, Boaz makes no move and is certainly not going to attempt romance and certainly not going to attempt to romance Ruth. He makes no move and is certainly not going to attempt to romance Ruth and place her heart at risk until he knows the relationship is appropriate. He makes no move and is certainly not going to attempt to romance Ruth and place her heart at risk and place her heart at risk until he knows the relationship is appropriate. Until he knows the relationship is appropriate. And our last point in this set of principles. In this, Boaz is protecting her emotional well-being outside of any relationship. In this, Boaz is protecting her emotional well-being outside of any relationship. So this is the situation in which we find ourselves. This is how Boaz is treating her. Now, what I've done is I've formed a second set of principles. And our second set of principles brings it that situation. I'm using that situation to now discuss a set of principles that I believe are important for us to understand when, we come, when it comes to courtship. So you can rest your fingers and your hands here for a minute but we're going to get another set of principles. We're going to look at what I think we can take from this. And to a real extent, I'm basing this on a New Testament principle. The Apostle Paul talks of this principle in Ephesians 5. He talks about this principle in Ephesians 5. He's just about ready to begin in verse, in verse 22 where he's talking about marriage, Christ, and the church. Where he talks about the responsibilities of wives in verse 22 and the responsibilities of husbands in chapter 25. Wives in 22, husbands in 25. But what he says first in verse 22 is he says... Submitting to each other, in submitting to one another, to each other really, in the fear of God. And what he means there is out of respect for each other. So he begins the set of principles that he's going to express about marriage by saying, before we begin any of this, we have to begin it out of respect for one another, for each other. Because we're going to see, of course, there are different roles in marriage. There are different roles in marriage. But those roles are based upon respect for one another. All right. So let's begin our principles here. Our first principle in our second set of principles, a gentleman knows, first of all, number one, a gentleman knows intimacy. A gentleman knows intimacy must not outpace commitment. A gentleman knows intimacy must not outpace commitment. And frankly, sometimes it takes us a long time to learn that manly art. 
A gentleman knows intimacy must not outpace commitment. And sometimes it takes us a while to learn that manly art. Secondly, as such, he, and I'm referring to the gentleman here, as such, he maintains honorable practices or guidelines. As such, he maintains honorable practices or guidelines. As such, he maintains honorable practices or guidelines for behavior that balance the relationship with commitment. As such, he maintains honorable practices or guidelines for behavior that balance the relationship with commitment. So the relationship throughout is balanced with commitment. As such, he maintains honorable practices or guidelines for behavior that balance the relationship with commitment. Point three. This is the big principle here. A man should not pursue a woman romantically. Three. A man should not pursue a woman romantically until he has the intentions of pursuing her for matrimony. A man should not pursue a woman romantically until he has the intention of pursuing her for matrimony. And even then, he should move cautiously. A man should not pursue a woman romantically until he has the intention of pursuing her for matrimony. And even then, he should move cautiously. Until he has the intention of pursuing matrimony, and even then he should move cautiously. Point four. Point four, and the he here is the gentleman. He treats a woman as he would want another man to treat his future wife. Four, he treats a woman as he would want another man to treat his future wife. Point five, to treat her otherwise to treat her otherwise is playing with her emotionally to treat her otherwise is playing with her emotionally and could cause unnecessarily unnecessary soul trauma. To treat her otherwise is playing with her emotionally and could cause unnecessary soul trauma for both of them, then and in the future. To treat her otherwise is playing with her emotionally and could cause unnecessarily soul, tra- soul trauma for both of them, then at the time and in the future. You see, our actions have future consequences and we often just ignore them. Many a man has learned this the hard way. Many a man has learned this the hard way. And I'm actually approaching this from the standpoint of Boaz, from the standpoint of the gentleman. Point six. The old-fashioned name for proper dating is called courtship. Point six. The old-fashioned name for proper dating is called courtship. 
the old-fashioned name for, for proper dating is called courtship. So part of this, point six, is what is courtship then? Courtship, so the old-fashioned name for proper dating is called courtship. Courtship, what is courtship? Courtship represents a relationship. Courtship represents a relationship in which a man and a woman, courtship represents a relationship in which a man and a woman are actively and intentionally together to consider marriage. Courtship represents a relationship in which a man and a woman are actively and intentionally together to consider marriage. They are actively and intentionally together to consider marriage. And if this is understood, if we understand that that's what courtship is, then the relationship has the clearly stated purpose of finding out if God would have us to marry. The relationship has the clearly stated purpose of finding out if God would have us to marry. That is the purpose, the clearly stated purpose of courtship. Point seven, what's the other choice? What's, what's the other choice? The other choice is to have an undefined romantic encounter or relationship. The other choice is to have an undefined romantic encounter or relationship. Point seven there is, the other choice is to have an undefined romantic encounter or relationship. I've got a couple more points here, but I'm going to give you the first part of eight, and then you're going to be able to relax a little bit while I discuss this in a little more detail. Point eight. Point seven was the other choice is to have an undefined romantic encounter or relationship. It's just undefined. It's just let's go out and have fun. And by the way, we probably have all said that. We've all said, have fun, date, meet people, enjoy them, go out, have fun. Well, sounds innocent, but it's dangerous, particularly if there are no controls on who we see and encounter. So point eight, remembering that the other choice is to have, don't write this down, I'm reviewing point seven for you, to begin point eight, Remembering the other choices to have an undefined romantic encounter relationship. Point eight. Today that leads to the pursuit of intimacy. Today that leads to the pursuit of intimacy without the responsibility of commitment. Today that leads to the pursuit of intimacy without the responsibility of commitment. So, what about dating for fun? You know, well, got date. I mean, and we've all said it, we've all heard it. I can remember my mother saying that to me. And I have the utmost respect for my mother. Well, Dan, of course, she was dealing with a son who 
too bashful to date. I don't think I had a date in high school. Didn't do much better my freshman year in college. She said, just you know, enjoy yourself. But what about dating for fun? Sounds innocent enough, but 95% of the time, someone gets hurt. 95% of the time, someone gets hurt. Just out there dating for fun. 95% of the time, someone gets hurt. Do it often enough, and the soul becomes scarred. Do it often enough, get hurt enough, and the soul becomes scarred. And this can work both ways. Because two people can meet each other, and the first night, they there's an attraction there. Nothing much happens, but now it continues. About 99% of the time, one of the couple really likes the other person. I mean, there's really a true uh, interest. And the other person really senses right away that there is no interest. I mean, yeah, it was fun. We had a good time. But they know almost from the beginning that it's probably not going to be a lasting relationship. But the relationship continues. And both are injured because the one falls in love and the heart is injured. The other one is calloused towards the other person and their feelings and their concerns. And they treat them really in a very inconsiderate manner. And we establish something in the soul that was not meant to be established. It's dangerous in both cases. Relationships are not viewed when we do that, when we just go out and date. The relationships are not viewed as meant to be lasting. This is just a casual, fleeting relationship. And let's say not much happens, but we go from relationship to relationship. Relationships are not viewed as meant to be lasting, but they're known to be temporary. And we establish in our souls the sense of temporary relationships. There was a time, there was a time before a boy dated a girl, the father asked the boy, what are your intentions? What are your intentions with my daughter, young man? You say, how do I know that? I was asked that question on several occasions. You know, I didn't have an answer. I honestly didn't have an answer. What are my intentions? Well, we're going to go have fun. And I think the first person that asked me that, the first man that asked me that question, I think I gave him some sort of an answer in that vein. I can remember him clearly asking me the question. Uh, I was uh, a freshman in college. She was a senior in high school. I was back from college. And uh, he was a member of our church. I knew him well. I knew her well. And I was, we were planning on going on a date. At least I thought we were. And he met me at the door. The good sense to go to the door. And he said, what are your intentions with my daughter? I said, well, I think we just have a good time. He said, I don't know if that's a good idea. (laughs) 
Sadly, the second time I was asked that question, I still didn't have much of an answer. But anyhow, what are your intentions? Casual dating has its dangers that courtship avoids. So this is still kind of part of point eight here. I'm trying to make this point. Casual dating has its dangers that courtship avoids. Casual dating has its dangers that courtship avoids. In courtship, the couple knows unambiguously the intentions of the other. In courtship, the couple knows unambiguously the intentions of the other. In courtship, the couple knows unambiguously the intentions of the other. Therefore, in courtship, therefore, in courtship, feelings and familiarity can grow naturally. In courtship, feelings and familiarity can grow naturally out of respect, friendship, and commitment. In courtship, feelings and familiarity can grow naturally out of respect, friendship, and commitment without needing to be masked or protected. They can grow naturally out of respect, respect, friendship, and commitment without being masked or protected. We know the intentions of the other person. We know my intentions. You know my intentions. So I don't have to play games. I don't have to put on a front. We don't have to mask or protect who we are. Just two more quick points. Point nine. Therefore, point nine. This is something we don't know today, sadly. A gentleman knows that the joy of intimacy. A gentleman knows that the joy of intimacy is the reward of commitment. A gentleman knows that the joy of intimacy is the reward of commitment. Therefore, intimacy waits for the commitment of the bonds of marriage. Therefore, intimacy waits for the commitment of the bonds of marriage. And point 10, Boaz is honorable and he's a, and he's a gentleman. So point 9 was a gentleman knows that the joy of intimacy is the reward of commitment. Therefore, intimacy waits for the commitment of the bonds of marriage. And point 10, Boaz is honorable and he's a gentleman. And what we're going to see in Boaz is that Boaz does not have any advances towards Ruth until a commitment is made, until he knows what his relationship should be with her. And we'll see that in chapter 3. Now, there's probably a lot of questions that we could ask revolving around this, and I'm just absolutely stunned that I got through all those principles, and I thank you for being patient and writing them down. But... uh, I think these principles are something that we don't discuss. And so, you know, naturally the the question that comes out of this, well, what about dating? What are your views in dating? Well, to a certain extent, each one of you have to sort of make decisions in your own lives about that. About what, how do we approach dating? Well, over the years, you know, it it was approached in a very restricted way. Now, of course, it's just get out there. 
mix it up. And what's happening, you know, in our marriages today. I think we scar ourselves before we finally get to marriage. And we carry those scars with us in marriage. And so it's a serious subject, courtship. And, of course, all of you are probably, not all of you, some of you might be sitting there thinking, you know, does he think he's the best example? No, I don't. It takes a long time for us to finally understand who we are, what we are, and what, what we should be. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for the book of Ruth. We're thankful for Boaz and Ruth. And we're thankful for the character of both of them. We're thankful particularly as we look at the character of Boaz and how he treats Ruth, his approach to Ruth, his relationship with her. He is compassionate, he's generous, he's gracious. But he is also a gentleman, and he also treats her honorably and respectfully. Father, we pray that we would be able to take these principles and apply them in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.